Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. Great that you're here. This is an interview special episode in which I will share three conversations with quite exciting European startups, all recorded by my colleague, founding editor of Tech EU, Robin Wouters. So our first interview of the day is a timely one in a way, actually. Uh, Seed Legals, the legal tech platform born in the UK, it appears to be a great solution for startups that are raising money amid the lockdown. Apparently, you can just take care of business with no paper documents, no legal firms, offices, all that nonsense, just none of it, really. So sounds like a dream. And uh, let's hear more about it from uh, Robin Wouters and Anthony Rose. So hey, this is Robin Wouters uh, from Tech.eu, joined here at a very safe distance, of course, by Anthony Rose, who is a founder and CEO of a company in the UK called Seed Legals. Anthony, thank, thank you so much for joining us uh, remotely and uh, tell us a little bit more about what Seed Legals is and does. So hi, uh, Seed Legals is a one-stop place to go to build your company, uh, do your funding round, build your team. So it's a legal tech platform that comes with us uh, to support. So if you want to, if you're a UK company and we've just launched in France and in Ireland, so French or Irish company as well, um, and you're looking to, for example, close a funding round, don't go to a law firm, come to Seed Legals, you enter the deal uh, terms you want. Our team are here to help with advice. The platform in seconds builds every document you need for your funding round. Uh, we show you how to offer SEIS to your or EIS tax savings to your investors. If you're a UK company, we build the term sheet, shells agreements and everything. So all the steps to close your round are automated so you can close dramatically faster. Uh, there are more than 12,000 UK companies uh, on seed legals, and we think about one in 12 of all early stage investments in the UK are now done through seed legals. And we like to think about when we build our own business, we think about what would a law firm do and then do completely the opposite. So right. it's a fixed price. Um, there's unlimited help and support. You don't book a call with us tomorrow. I mean, you can if you want, but you hit us up on web chat. Our median response time is something like one minute, 48 seconds. Um, and uh, we close several funding rounds per day. And what's quite interesting is actually, and maybe we'll, you can ask a question in a minute about how times are changing and how people are adapting uh, to coronavirus and investors disappearing and so on. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute indeed. Okay. Uh, but maybe maybe just a little bit more about the history of the company and the background, uh, when and how it started, but also uh, more importantly, why? Yeah, so it's a fun story. So, I mean, I used to head up uh, BBC iPlayer, so I'm used to building products that hopefully many millions of people love. After I left the BBC, I built a startup, sold it, built a startup, sold it, invested in a few, got tired of paying lawyers. And then I met my business partner, Laurent Lafie. Laurent is an ex-VC and serial angel investor, complete genius at the space. Uh, we met at a party and uh, he was saying, you know, those lawyers, they charge a fortune, they take forever, they make mistakes, we should change that. It was about three and a half years ago. And uh, we decided, yeah, let's do it. And so about six months later, we launched. That was uh, almost three years ago now. Uh, we raised a million pounds at the time and uh, and have grown steadily since then and now about 55 people. Fantastic. And how, when, when you launched, uh, when you did your market research, did you find anything comparable or similar in the UK, Europe or even beyond? 
So uh, it's a great question because uh, I talk to many, many startups, uh, you know, at Seed Legals, including personally talk to many. Um, and it seems to me that all startups, the founders, uh, have to solve uh, one of several problems. So, you know, typically it is, can I build it? Um, will people want it? Can I get investment? Can I build a team? And between Leroy and myself, we knew we could build it. We knew we could get funding. We knew we could build a team. And we also knew quite quickly that startups would want it and we'd had enough experience ourselves. But what we didn't know is would investors allow it? Maybe investors would go, no, I insist on using my lawyers. Um, I don't care what you want. We're going to a law firm. And so that for, for us was the big leap of faith that we needed to take. And uh, and so I was delighted, actually, when I found not only did investors uh, accept it, but in fact, they love it. And it turns out one of my big viral plays is with investors, particularly angel investors who've done a round on seed legals, didn't know about us before, and then drop us a note going, that was actually really good. The founders knew what they were doing. The deal docs were great. I could e-sign, you know, it was the fastest round I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more? And then we do a demo and then they, they use it. So, but, but I think if I can offer some advice for founders is, you know, when you have an idea, most founders think the difficult thing is building it. But actually, when you realize a year later after you've built it and there are few users, your biggest problem is actually having people want it. And so everything about a startup is about uh, inverting that so that you do your discovery about whether people really want it before you spend any time building it. Yeah, that's massively good advice, I would say. Um, and uh, of course, you mentioned the crisis already. Uh, that we have a global pandemic on our hands. How is it affecting you as a company in terms of daily operations today? But also, uh, has it, you know, uh, been uh, has there been any change to the products and the services that you offer? Yeah, great question. So uh, thing number one is we're one of the earlier companies to say we're going to work at home. Obviously, our team is... Uh, well, I love building a team that's all in the same office, that works together, plays together, does team events and so on. So for me, it was with a heavy heart that, you know, the team took it to it like ducks to water. We we're all on Slack and intercom with our customers and so on anyway. So uh, thing one, working from home, we try super hard to have fun events. We've got a weekly stand up. We've got a, a Zoom and lunch on Fridays where we eat lunch, not allowed to talk work. Um, we've got a Strava uh, running. So you run individually, but uh, that we've got a fridge of the day where someone posts a photo of their fridge well, hmm. through anonymously through our team success manager and everyone needs to guess whose fridge it is and a number of other crazy initiatives. As a company, Actually, it's turned out it's been a record quarter for us and a record last month and a record last week. Um, and much of that is to do with uh, April the 5th being the end of the uh, tax year for SEIS and EIS investments in the UK. So that then leads me to the next thing, which is actually we've got, compared to everyone, unique insight and data for two reasons. One, because of the huge number of companies that use seed legals, but also unlike a law firm that uh, you know has Word documents, we've got a platform with, that takes inputs and generates things. And as a result, we can look at the inputs across hundreds of funding rounds to get insights that no one else would have. And also early indicators, because 
some companies look at company house filings to see what was raised, we can see the rounds opening, you know, weeks or months beforehand. So I can tell you what's really interesting is our data shows that, um, you know, most of our customers are doing angel slash seed rounds and they sometimes have a VC, but they often have angel investors. So what was interesting is we found that about 30% of angel investors bailed out of the round, um, but the round still closed, but with 30% less investment. So what I am delighted by is the fact that our platform really empowers founders as things change. And I think that's one of the key things. Investor disappears, you don't need another draft of the documents by next Wednesday. It takes you three seconds to remove their name and the docs are updated. So we found that founders just changed their round as investors left to close reliably and actually more rounds closed and are still closing today actually, um, but with 30% less investment. Um, we found in our data, very interestingly, that the valuations haven't changed. So one of the things we've read is that, you know, investors are saying slash the valuation, but no, in rounds based on data over at least 100 rounds over the last month, valuations are unchanged. We've also read that um, often previous investors are asked to, you know, support the company. So new investors bail but existing investors carry the can. And we found, no, that's not the case either. It's been exactly the same proportion of new and existing investors as well. So um, we're now also running data to look at, uh, you know, companies can hire people and use seed legals for the employment agreements. So I don't have the results yet, but we're gonna look at, for example, employee salaries or number of agreements created to see if there's a change there. Uh, maybe that'll be for our next podcast. Yeah. Um, so that's massively interesting, the fact that you have that much data and that you uh, already got some statistics out of it. Um, uh, one question, though, because you're talking about um, the current situation, which we're about a month into most of the, the lockdowns and the, you know, the sort of uh, the peak of the, the pandemic uh, so far, at least. Uh, let's hope it stays a peak. Um, but don't you think that's a bit of a trailing statistic in the sense that most of the deals that are most of the rounds that are closing now are actually deals that have been. Uh, probably negotiate over the last few weeks and months and that we might see a huge drop off in the, in the in the next few months so you're absolutely correct of course uh, as i said it's linked uh, largely to a rush for the tax year and the next month might be completely different so what are we doing about it and i think like uh, any astute uh, company you look to um, opportunistically uh, take advantage of different times, whether it's you know moving from events, physical events to online. But in our case, I think one of the things we saw, which was quite interesting, is when you start your business, it's all fun and games. It's a technical problem, right? We're doing this cool legal document automation, and then one day you wake up and you discover that you know twelve thousand companies and over many you know hundred thousand plus people are now somewhat dependent and looking to you for advice and now you've got a social responsibility. So when we saw that the UK government introduced furlough leave, we saw immediately that that would be things that people would be looking for. So it took us 72 hours to write, I think industry leading knowledge and advice and build that as a product on Seed Legals completely for free. So if you need to furlough your team, 
you know, just hit, hit up Seed Legal's furlough or go to our resources tab. There's articles on it. And then you can create the legally required furlough documentation that people are only discovering now that they need. Because if you don't, HMRC may not give you the money back later. So I think, and then since that, we've seen our web traffic quadruple and we've seen well over a thousand companies sign up in the week to create furlough for many thousands of people. So in a sense, I see that as a kind of, in a, you know, as your company grows, one of the things you didn't think about at the beginning is that you now have a social responsibility. But that's the, you know, move fast, offer people things they need now. But since we're giving that for free, that's not a revenue thing for us. So the next thing that we're working on is companies, if they can't readily raise, what are they going to do? Would there be debt products? Would there be R&D tax things? Would there be other things that we can leverage to now support our customers and, in fact, give us a market-leading position, thanks to our automation and team and so on, on things that we haven't been able to do? Obviously, these are speculative, so I have no idea if it's going to work brilliantly or not, um, but maybe that's for our next podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch. We'll keep an eye out for sure. Um, one thing that I was wondering as we're talking about the data, um, is there any way that you can, you probably can already uh, sort of match the data so you can actually help companies find the right investors? But is it also something that, that you think is part of your your roadmap as a, you know, as a, as a product driven company that you can actually uh, sort of play a matchmaking platform between the, the right investors and the right uh, startups? So that's a great question, you know, and one of the key things as a founder is, you know, to entertain all these uh, what if, should we do X or Y? So today we, we you know, are very well regarded and users love us as being a really good, you know, uh, solution for funding and legal, essentially. Um, would I want to change that and be a terrible matchmaker? Uh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, it could be a really that, good one too. Yeah, we, we could, but we could risk it. So it's a, it's a, it's a quandary. The other thing is uh, in the UK, we might need to be FCA regulated if we were to be matchmaking. So our thought is, you know, it's uh, quite likely we'll get there. But what we're going to do is get there in a slightly different path, which is with a set of products for both founders and for investors and essentially enable them to both execute things on seed legals without us necessarily having to play matchmaker. So, for example, we're about to launch seed legals for investors. So if you're an investor, seed legals be the fastest way to send out your term sheet to a company and then this is the magic of course sending a term sheet is a word document right i'm competing with it's no big deal but the magic is now a deal term comparator so as the company uh, chooses to accept some or not you'll see a nice interface that shows you know what i said what you want and as we agree them the rest of the round completes so you can see that the initially the goal is by having the investor and the company are both on the platform. Uh, that in, removes more friction from deals. And then I think after that, I'll essentially have the batting averages for both founders and investors. And maybe that can then, you know, easily uh, have a founder go, yes, but put my pitch deck up here and make it available to these qualified investors. But that's a step or two away. We're thinking about that. 
Yeah, super interesting. Um, the other um, obvious uh, path to growth uh, for you is, of course, internationalization. I was reading when you raised your Series A round about a little uh, less than a year ago. Uh, I think it was 3.6 million euros that you raised uh, in your Series A. Um, that part of that money would, would be used for internationalization. You already mentioned, mentioned that you're live in France and Ireland. Um, can you elaborate on that? And can you also talk about what comes next? Yes. So uh, I must say, uh, France has me uh, particularly excited. Uh, why? Because TransferWise gives you borderless banking. But imagine borderless legals. Today, legals are highly localized. Every country's got its own law, jurisdiction, many of their own languages. Um, and as an investor, I wouldn't invest in a French company because I don't have no idea of the legals. But imagine you've got an interface that shows you the deal terms I'd like an investor director position, please, and I want investor consent, and this is my drag along. In a standardized what investors are always looking for and what the basic investor protections and company rights and so on. Expressed in plain English is a series of deal terms, but then miraculously rendered in not just the legals and language of that country, but actually the workflow as well. So it took us some months to crack the French funding round legals and workflow. And you can now hop in seed legals. I don't speak French. My business partner does. Um, but I can hop in and say, I'd like to you know, invest in a French company, set my drag along, whatever it is in plain English. And then magic, the deal docs are not just in French language or English as appropriate, because often many French documents are in English. Um, French uh, round documents, the Shells Agreement is in English. Um, but also, uh, we've seen the crazy things that need to be done in rounds between the resolutions and the permissions. We've uh, essentially productized all of that. So what I'm really excited about is you can look at a country, something that's been done for decades in terms of funding and so on, look to understand what is done most common and then provide an automated solution. So it would have taken months for anyone to figure out individually all the steps to do but actually you go in a workflow page and it goes do this do this these people need to sign that here's the form that goes there and if you need help talk to this person and i'm hugely excited about that so france uh, is live we have the bsa air which is their equivalent of a safe uh, we've got funding rounds and we're about to uh, launch the bspce which is the french uh, share option scheme uh, tax advantage option scheme. So it's a complete solution for French companies. Um, and then we'll pick the next, uh, you know, jurisdiction after that. The, uh, you know, Germany's a nice market, but the legal good. system... I was just about it, to say Germany's probably uh, high on well, your list. Everyone, everyone, uh, investors keep calling me saying, please do Germany because notaries have to read our stuff. But actually, I think, you know, if there's one upside from, well, there are many upsides from uh, the coronavirus but one of them is it's going to force those stuffy old legal things to change so for example i've just seen in france where some things you need to physically go to a notary guess what you can now e-sign that online great it only took 500 years but that's changed now it's 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 listed as a temporary measure do you think anyone's going back to the old ways afterwards i doubt it so I'm delighted that all those old, you have to sign this on a piece of paper and parchment is rapidly disappearing. And, you know, again, as a competitive advantage, uh, an online platform and e-signing and so on, you know, I'd love to take advantage of that. 
Great. Super interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing a bit more about uh, your plans with Seed Legals. Uh, looking forward to uh, where you land next uh, in Europe. And uh, it's been tremendously helpful in the UK. I've heard uh, a lot of investors and founders say that already. So congratulations on the work done so far and uh, keep it up. Thank you very much. Now, borderless legal, and this is certainly not something that I expected to hear in my lifetime. So I really hope that Anthony and the team will be able to realize this vision of theirs. Now, let's get to our next interview, and this time the conversation is about learning. The featured startup this time is Perlego, which is an unlimited ebook subscription service for academic and professional content. The founder of Perlego, Gautier van Maldren, uh, launched the service to solve a problem that he had himself, which is that the academic and professional books are quite expensive and also very few people actually read them more than once. So from the other side of that problem were publishers who also weren't quite enjoying the ride. I had seen that the four big publishers in this industry, so that's Pearson, Wiley, Cengage and McGraw-Hill, had all seen their revenues decline by 44% in those past three years. And that was due to the massive increase in piracy and the massive increase in the second-hand book market. Um, so if you use a student solution a simple space where you find all your core learning material and the solution for publishers is to recuperate revenue loss from piracy and the secondhand book market so a more efficient way to distribute contents right so this this was sort of a way to scratch your own itch um but did you when you did your research on on what was out there did you find anything similar to to prolego today yeah so we had someone had tried to do uh, something similar to prolego in 2013 um but the timing wasn't right so as everything i think when you talk about early stage companies, timing is a very essential thing. You've got to be lucky in terms of the timing. Um, and this company had failed to do so because publishers were still making a lot of money in print and they hadn't really shifted to digital. Um, and then they really started to shift to digital in 2015. And now uh, if we look at the big publishers, I think 70 to 80% of their revenues are a pure digital uh, revenue mix. So really we've seen a massive shift and Pelega's kind of piggybacked on that, on that um, wave. Right. And so you started a company about three, four years ago. Um, what has changed since then? What's the, what does the company look like today? Sure. So we're now 55 in the team. We've raised over $50 million. Um, we now have over 2,800 publishers, 300,000 titles. We're accessible across Europe. I think on a wider picture as well, um, speaking frankly, I think it was very hard to raise for an edtech startup uh, in, in, in Europe. We still don't have an edtech unicorn. And I think there's a huge opportunity to build a huge edtech company in the UK or in Europe. And I think there's much more appetite to invest in edtech startups now. Um, and I'm seeing that the money going into edtech startups really is growing quite a lot. So I think over as a whole, uh, we're seeing a lot of improvement from that perspective. Great. Well, what about the market? Has it changed in any way? Was your assumptions right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Everyone's saying edtech is the new fintech. Huh? Um, still has to be seen, but I, you know, the the amount of capital that's uh, gone into edtech over the last three years has doubled year on year. So it really is becoming an exciting, um, an exciting vertical to invest in. Um, and the issue is in edtech is a bit harder to scale, right? You have it's not one product for all. You have lots of different markets, lots of different um, types of customers as well. Um, so you need to find a scalable solution in edtech. And I think Pelego is one of them. You know, your one textbook is used by um, 18 million students across Europe. So you do have scale from that perspective. All right. And what does the competitive landscape look like today? Do you have any like proper rivals today? 
So I think we've got three types of competitors. I think you've got your first competitor is print. Print is still an amazing product, right? It's portable. You can take it everywhere. We need to become better than print. Um, and so the fact that you can highlight, annotate, work with your classmates, we could work together on a book. You need to provide more convenience in a digital product than a print product. So first competitors, print, you've got bookshops, etc. The second competitors are digital platforms like Amazon. Uh, in the US, you have someone called Chegg. They sell textbooks, one book, one model. So they right. sell to students. And then the third one is piracy, right? As a student, you can find every book online for free um, on illegal websites. So again, you've got to build a better product. Um, you have to offer more convenience than just downloading an illegal PDF of, 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 um, of uh, some websites. Yeah. Is that also you know, the, the essence of your sales pitch to publishers that you're combating piracy? Is that how you get them on board? 100%. I think where Pelega brings value is one, we're a brand that resonates well with the student market. Uh, publishers are not very good at marketing to students and two through convenience because you'll have your all your books in one simple space you're not going to go and download the books or try and find uh, photocopied versions um, and it's by being a multi-publisher solution that you that you'll have that convenience so i think right. what we offer to publishers is no more piracy no more secondhand book sales because you're a pure digital product a better way to distribute content and then a, bit, a way to get data on your users as well. So something we provide back is, you know, how many people are reading this book? How many people are reading that book? Uh, it's all anonymized, of course, but you have all the consumption trends on, on the content that, that people are consuming. Right. Uh, at what point do you make the jump across the Atlantic and attack the US market? Oh, it's a very exciting one. So one of our biggest growth channels is organic. Uh, so what we've done is we have book pages for every title which gets indexed by Google. And if we look at our traffic, 38 to 39% now of organic traffic comes from the US. So there's a huge demand for that. I think for us to crack the US, we need to raise more money. I think we need to raise, you know, 20, 25 million to really make a dent into that market. Um, but US is definitely on the cards in the next 12 to 18 months. Right. Um, are you out fundraising today? Because I uh, imagine that uh, the situation has become a bit more complex uh, compared to like even a month ago. Yeah, sure. So we have a we've got a quite ni nice position. We closed our our last round in uh, November this year. Uh, well, twenty nineteen. I'm not looking at raising in the next twelve to fifteen months at least. Um, I feel that the market's completely dried up, and and people who are saying no are still investing. I can see I've got friends trying to raise money right now. It's very very tough. So I think for the next three months we won't see much deal flow come through especially in early stage companies. Good on you for getting the timing right, even though nobody could have predicted this, of course. So speaking of which, we were dealing with this uh, situation on a global uh, scale now, uh, but how is it affecting you as an early stage startup? So honestly, Peleg from a Pelega perspective, you know, we're a pure online learning library, pure digital. Um, we've seen our growth double over the last few weeks. So, you know, the number of users coming on board has really, really accelerated. Um, which for us is an opportunity. Now, I think the, the tricky thing is remote working. So, you know, you're pushing 55 people out from a remote perspective. That's fine. But I think it will have impacts on culture. Ultimately, I think people love to, you know, uh, feel each other's experiences when you're building a company. And then on the publisher side, as Pelego is not a priority, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these big publishers have never worked remotely. They don't even have the laptops to work remotely. We're not a core priority. So that will probably have an effect on the business that, You know, it'll take us three, four extra months to close more contracts with some of those publishers we're still missing. 
Yeah. Um, but on a daily operational level, is it really uh, that much of a difference with everyone working from home or were you sort of already set up uh, with this as a tech company? Yeah. We, you know, we're both in the luxurious position of being an early stage company and, and, and quite nimble and quite adaptable, right? We don't have thousands of employees and we don't have legacy infrastructure that we have to migrate online. Um, I think it puts more pressure on managers because you've got to communicate much more. You've got to do much more check-ins, et cetera. Um, and I think ultimately it's also for some people gets a bit lonely, right? So it's important that people keep interacting, keep chatting to their colleagues um, so we do like coffee catch-ups every day and stuff like that. So I think short-term, it's been, it's been great. Productivity has even increased. But I think long-term, we'll probably see impacts in terms of mental health and in terms of also the strong culture that you have when, when you're in an office altogether. Well, it's great that you're at the very least already acknowledging and, and being aware of it, um, which is a first step, I guess, for many companies are not used to this. You know? um, so I didn't know this until this morning, but you actually have a bit of a Belgian connection as well. Um, yeah, yeah, but you start you started the company in London, where you where you were obviously studying in the UK already, so that makes sense. But uh, is there any particular reason why you didn't set up a company in Belgium? So look, I'm a Belgian born and bred. I love Belgium. Uh, I think the quality of life we have here is absolutely amazing, and I think the there's a huge opportunity to to build a huge ecosystem. I always look at a similarity like Sweden. They have 15, 16 unicorns. Belgium only has one, right? If I'm not mistaken, we have one. Um, yep. We have great talent. So I think ultimately right now, and, and this is when I was starting Palego, all the big publishers are based in the UK. Um, when I was raising our seed round, I actually came to Belgium and it was very difficult for me as a first time founder, not much of a background building of companies. On paper, I made no sense, right? I had never worked in publishing, never built a tech company. Um, what was interesting is I had tried in, in Belgium and it was very, very tough. And then I tried in the UK and sort of six to eight weeks, I had closed our, our, our first round of funding. And I think that's because you have, you know, entrepreneurs, ex-entrepreneurs who are reinvesting into the ecosystem a lot. Um, so we've got some angels like Alex Chesterman, founder of Zoopla, Simon Franks, Love Film. Uh, they reinvest. But you also have SCIS, EIS. You have these great investment schemes, which makes it much more interesting to invest in an early stage company for private individuals. So I think for me, there was just more capital at the time. That said, again, Belgium really is changing. If we look at our last round of funding, we brought on some investors like Casper van Rijn, Thomas Lesson, Peter Hinson. We have a lot of Belgian investors who are kind of reinvesting into, into Belgian entrepreneurs, which, which I think is also fantastic. So I think in yeah. three, four years, it will change massively again. Yeah. Uh, and I also think three, four years ago when you started, it was also quite a different landscape and London made a ton more sense than uh, than Belgium, it, even if it does still does today, but especially so, I think, three, four years ago. Yeah, but I think that's, you know, Brexit, um, even little things like the quality of life, the, the expense, you know, it's very expensive to live in London. There's, I think I think Belgium now is getting more and more attractive for everyone. Um, and we have great talent at, a, at not as expensive cost as well. So. I think it's a great ecosystem. It just needs more capital to, to get it started. Yeah. Um, so do you think this, this pandemic is going to have a long-lasting effect on, on London as, a, as an ecosystem, as a startup ecosystem? Um, I think potentially. So what's interesting is uh, we had offices in a WeWork. Um, so you, you know all the drama and all the stuff <laughs> behind WeWork, right? But I think um, WeWork is a very cyclical business. So a lot of those small companies will all be leaving these office spaces. And I think a lot of people will be going remote. I think because we've been forced to work remotely, you actually, after a week or two, start benefiting saying, hey, it's not that bad. 
Um, so I think a lot of people would be like, why do we need to be in a fancy London office, um, which is very expensive, if we could get maybe a small office to share and, and work remotely three days a week and come into the office two days a week? So, yeah, I think it will have a huge, huge impact, um, especially since, and I'm sure you saw this, France is investing four billion into helping the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything for the UK yet. So we need a bit of solidarity to UK and British businesses to to help them as well, because there's a great ecosystem. But if the government doesn't help in some way or form, a lot of those companies will die out over the next six months, I reckon. Yeah. Well, um, it's the uncertainty, I guess, is uh, is the main main yeah. factor now that nobody really knows what's going to happen in the next few months. Yeah. Um, but do you see any consolidation in this space? Because I had some conversations with online learning uh, platforms for this podcast just last week. And it feels to me there's a lot of small players that might make sense to sort of consolidate at some point and build strategic partnerships, maybe even acquisitions to build a bigger company together. 100%. 100%. If we look at companies in the US, you have these big players, you know, worth billions and billions that are, they do a bit of everything. So you can find your tutoring, you can find your books, you can find your flashcards. I believe it's consolidation in one space where you have everything that could really, really become huge. The way I see it is you need to make a learning as a service product. Um, and I think right now, especially in the UK and Europe, a lot of people are doing a bit of everything. And those businesses can each get to maybe 10, 20, 30 million of revenue, but you can't build a huge global company. It's bringing everything together that you could really build a a unicorn uh, quite quickly and quite efficiently as well. Yeah, well, looking forward to seeing how how this all plays out and what role uh, ProLego, of course, will play in all of this. Awesome. Um, But good. Gautier, thank you so much for your time. It was very, very educational for me. Uh, And best of luck with Perlego in these times of crisis. Thank you very much. You too. Thanks. Now, from books and learning, let us move to health tech. Our final startup for today is Flow. And Flow is working on a medication-free treatment of depression that is based on brain stimulation. This is a really fascinating tech. Let's check it out together. So hey, this is uh, Robin Walters for Tech.eu. I'm joined here, of course, uh, from a safe distance uh, by Daniel, who is a co-founder of a company called Flow, uh, Flow Neuroscience, I should say, a Swedish startup working on a technological solution for depression treatment. Daniel, very very much welcome to the show. And maybe can you tell us in your own words what uh, the company is and does? Thank you so much for uh, having me on. Uh, so the company was started about four and a half years ago uh, with a vision to create new kinds of treatments for mental health problems with the help of new technology and neuroscience. Uh, our first product is a treatment for unipolar depression or regular depression uh, that comprises a brain stimulation headset and a behavioral therapy program in the form of an app. So it's uh, fully automated. So that means they basically are building a software plus hardware solution um, to create a medication-free and a therapy, well, like a personal therapy-free treatment for depression. Is that correct? Exactly. It's medication-free and it's home-based. So you can order it from our website. You can get it within a couple of days in Europe and then you can start your treatment right away. Great. Well, that's quite fascinating. We'll talk about uh, the specifics of the treatment uh, a bit later on, but maybe can you walk me through how the company was started and why it was started in the first place? Yeah, so so um, as I mentioned, it was started four and a half years ago uh, by me and my co-founder, Eric. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist and I researched this technology and uh, did a study on it um, a couple of years ago, uh, or 
actually six years ago now, um, where we looked at TDCS for, and this is the technology that we're using in the in the in the headset uh, for treatment or yeah for treatment of people with attentiveness disorders. We tried to affect their ability to uh, to concentrate, basically, and we got some good results there. And so I started traveling the world and um, meeting up at the different scientific conferences. Um, and found out that this technology is very effective for, especially for for depression. The studies was just about to come out, and and, and the results were very good. So, uh, by coincidence, my my co-founder Eric came home from um, uh, doing some work in the U.S. in Silicon Valley at a very interesting company doing uh, AI, and and. Um, he came home to Stockholm, and uh, he is a theoretical neuroscientist. Uh, so we took our areas of, of expertise and put them together into this company um, four and a half years ago. And uh, now we managed to to get this product into a C-marked medical device, which was a big thing. Uh, we didn't know anything about medical devices from the beginning, but uh, now we know quite a lot. Yeah, I was just going to ask, is the vision of uh, that you had four and a half years ago, is that what's coming through fruition now? Is it the vision that you had all along or has it evolved over the years? Yeah, it's actually in, in these times of, of pivoting companies, uh, we have looked back quite many times and said that this is quite amazing, actually, that we started out with with this vision and um, and this idea about a treatment that could be used at home that was medication free and that combined these two things of brain stimulation and and classical uh, psychological uh, treatment methods in, in the form of an app and that was basically uh, the idea from the beginning and 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 now that's exactly what what we are doing yeah. and what are some of your learnings in in terms of uh you know developing a, developing a medical device which was the first for you uh, developing hardware in the first place getting this product uh, to the market like what what are some of the key learnings that you have to share Yes, yeah, so I would say from from a medical device point of view, uh, this is a very thorough uh, regulatory framework um, to build medical devices. Um, so the amount of work that have gone into this device that is um, uh, it's quite enormous. So so the big uh, learnings would would basically be that uh, it takes a lot of time to do it. Uh, it takes a lot of of uh, thinking about risk understanding risk and um, uh, but also getting it to a uh, product that people that people like that kind of combination is the, is what we have learned uh, during these years so um, very happy about the kind of end result of the product even though uh, we will we will keep on on uh, working on it definitely but but uh, what we have in the market right now is really I'm really really pleased with it is there anything comparable to it on the market today, or is it quite unique? So there are TDCS devices from other companies. Uh, we have not invented a technology uh, in itself, but there are no other home solutions for TDCS combined with this uh, psychological treatment that we have. So we have a very comprehensive um, treatment program in the app also. It's, uh, I think, 540 pages of information put together by clinical psychologists where we have looked into all of the research or much of the research uh, in these four areas of, of exercise, 
uh, of nutrition, of meditation, and of sleep. And we put together all of the big studies, uh, or many of the big studies, into this treatment program also. Um, so, so these two combined uh, is a very unique solution, yeah. And you have a, I invite everyone actually to check it out. You have an entire section on the science behind it on your website. Now, I'm not a scientist, so how can you effectively summarize sort of the science behind all of this? If you can at all. Yeah, I can, I can try at least. Um, so when it comes to the, to the brain stimulation technique, um, it's basically um, a technique for, for getting the neurons uh, somewhere in the head uh, depending on where you put the electrodes, to get a little bit more activated underneath the what's called the anode or the plus pole, um, and then to get them a little bit less activated underneath the uh, minus pole uh, or the cathode. Um, so what we are doing is that we are placing the plus pole uh, on this side and the minus pole on the other side, which means that we can get this side to get a little bit, so the left side for the listeners, uh, on the on the forefront of the brain uh, to get a little bit uh, more activated and um, this has a bunch of effects that are positive for depression so in the studies uh, we can get an effect of roughly that are roughly the same as antidepressants um, but with the big benefit of having a lot less severe side effects than, than uh, antidepressants have. Great. And how well is it resonating with, uh, with actual customers? How, how's the business going? So it's going great. Um, if we're looking at uh, in the App Store, for example, looking at the app, we have a 4.6 grade point uh, average um, out of five. And we have 10,000 downloads or something like that, 500 reviews. Um, when it comes to the headset, um, we can see that um, roughly 35% get a 50% reduction or more, which might sound uh, low, but it's actually quite well aligned with how antidepressants, uh, how effective they are. And these are real-world data. So this is, could be... Uh, mild, moderate, or severe depressed patients um, going in with all sorts of medications and all sorts of life conditions and so on. And um, so, so that's, that's actually quite impressive, um, even, even more so than I thought in the beginning. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, Daniel, can you tell us a little bit more about the company itself? How many people have you raised funding? Where are you actually based, etc.? Yeah, sure. So we are based in, in Malmö in Sweden, uh, in the south of Sweden. And... Um, we are uh, Swedish only in the way where we, we where we actually located, but we are a very international company. So we went to China early on um, and spent six months in Shenzhen in China um, through the Hacks Accelerate program. Um, we then proceed in raising funds from um, the largest or one of the largest VC companies in the world, uh, Coastal Ventures. They're amazing when it comes to healthcare investments in particular uh, and great overall. Um, so um, we raised $2.4 million uh, so far and um, uh, very happy with, uh, with our investors. 
so that's what I can Great. tell you about that. Uh, maybe just to uh, stop dancing uh, around the elephant in the room here, uh, with the current crisis that we have on our hands uh, with the global uh, pandemic, is there an increased demand for products such as yours? Because of mental health is, of course, uh, a huge topic these days uh, for people staying not only safe, but also sane uh, inside their homes. Do you see an increased, increased demand already? Yes, definitely. Uh, I would say that the demand was high from, from the beginning uh, because this is a treatment that you can you can do from home, as I mentioned. And uh, we see that about 50% of, uh, of the depressed patients today all over the world and not just in the in the um, in, in countries where you don't have access to to uh, psychologists and so on, uh, but all over the world, um, they don't have access to, to treatment. Those fifty percent, uh, because of stigma, because of problems with antidepressants, or because of other other problems. Um, but with this crisis, uh, the focus has become even more on being able to access treatment while not seeing um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or on a regular basis. Um, so uh, in order for us to be able to treat someone, you have to have a diagnosis of depression. That's very important to mention. Um, but you can, you can manage the rest of the treatment uh, from a home environment. And that's uh, definitely uh, been... Uh, yeah, so so our solution is is good in that manner, definitely. Great. Um, I should have probably asked you this before, but what does the pricing looks like look like? So the pricing uh, is uh, three hundred and ninety nine pounds, and then you get the treatment for uh, for a, an intense treatment for for six weeks. Uh, you get the device and so on, of course, and then you can continue buying pads at a very re reduced price. After that, um, uh, I think it's at uh, nine, 16 pounds or something like that in order to get another 20 sessions. Um, if you want to go with the six months treatment, that's 500, uh, sorry, 439 pounds. Yeah, quite interesting. Um, just to get back to the, the question that I had on the crisis, is it also affecting you as a company internally in, the, in your daily operations, etc.? Um, yeah, so we, we work remotely, uh, definitely. Uh, we have done so for the last uh, three weeks. Uh, but as we are a uh, uh, technological company, um, that is not a, a very big problem. We have our uh, fika breaks, uh, uh, coffee breaks uh, together with the with the employees, and uh, and have uh, as many meetings as, as as possible in order to to keep in contact. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks for uh, sharing a bit more about the company and uh, the way that you're dealing with the crisis. Uh, maybe just as a final question, how do you perceive, because you're based in Malmö, so it's not uh, exactly the center of the European tech ecosystem and not even of the Swedish tech ecosystem, I would argue. Uh, but what is your point of view on the, on the startup scene in Sweden these days? Well, first I have to uh, correct you a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say that we, we are in the, in the, in the center of um, at least the health tech community. Uh, in in Sweden, but we're also very very close to Copenhagen. It's like thirty minutes away, and so uh, down here we have about four million people, I think, uh, in this area in the Öresunds uh, region. So that's in the center of something at least. But your but your question was yeah. Sorry. What is your uh, what is your view on the on the Swedish startup ecosystem and maybe even your place in oh. it? Yeah. So so the Swedish startup 
system is is um, unique and and amazing in many ways. We have uh, a bunch of large companies coming from Sweden, with of course the famous Spotify and Skype and all of these companies, but also smaller ones um, within the health tech space. And we also have the telehealth uh, community uh, with Cree and my doctor and so on, Doclin in the UK. So um, I would say that um, our place is is strong. We're getting a lot of um, uh, interest, but we are an international company, and um, our primary market is the UK. Uh, as I said before, we've been to China. We have investors in the US and so on. So um, I I don't really want to be a center of a particular country's uh, startup system. We are a company that wants to uh, to develop new treatments for for depression, and we do whatever we can in order to to achieve that. Great. Well, that's a perfect note to uh, end on. Thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck uh, going through this crisis uh, as a company, uh, but also personally, of course, stay safe and stay sane. You too. Thank you so much for for having me on. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word about this podcast. Tell a friend or colleague about this show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at techEU. Wherever you are, we hope that you can stay safe and take care of yourself and people around you. Have a good week, and I'm going to talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.